This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. Everybody had a good, uh, I guess, two weeks away from this class and one week away from class in general. Um, everybody have a nice spring break? There are tons of relaxing time for all of you. Um, well, if you remember back to uh, before, uh, I guess it was three weeks ago now, we had been going through some of the uh, just general comments about the covenant of grace. Uh, we've been looking particularly at the overall unity of the covenant of grace. And the last thing that we had talked about before uh, class ended was the common thread of what we called the Emmanuel principle through the covenant of grace. Uh, the principle that stated repeatedly, uh, God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. Uh, this theme that runs uh, throughout the scriptures that uh, pretty clearly articulates what God, what, what his purpose is uh, through his covenant. Uh, he is intending to draw his people to himself, to be their God, to have him be their, or to have, for him to be their God and them to be his people. So that was the, uh, the first thing that we had noted uh, that indicates the overall unity of the covenant of grace. Uh, Throughout all of its administrations, there's this common purpose, uh, thereby illustrating its overall unity. And before we uh, move past the general comments about the covenant of grace, there's just one more more indicator of the overall unity that we wanted to address this morning. Um, There's this common purpose, the Emmanuel Principle, and there's also a common... Uh, goal, uh, or rather a, a common method by which this goal is accomplished, if you want to put it that way. Uh, if, the, if the purpose of the covenant of grace is this Emmanuel principle, there's also a common way by which this goal is achieved. And that goal, or that, that method is uh, through justifying faith. Uh, throughout all of the different administrations of the covenant of grace, uh, the Emmanuel principle is realized through justifying faith. Uh, you get it uh, you know, from, the, from the start of the covenant of grace to the end. And probably one of the, the earliest and clearest and best known statements of that uh, importance of justifying faith um, comes in Genesis 15.6 uh, where we read of Abraham believing the Lord and God crediting that to him as righteousness. Uh, you as far back as Abraham, it's very clear that uh, faith, the faith of God's people was credited to them as righteousness. Uh, there was a, a justifying faith amongst the people of God. Uh, now, you, you can that's the one of the earliest clear statements. We'll see as we, uh, through the uh, two hours today, we'll get to some other places even prior to Abraham where we have... Uh, evidences of justifying faith, but probably there in Genesis 15:6 is the earliest uh, indisputable one. Uh, the, the scriptures clearly clearly say that Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, when you go into the Mosaic covenant, uh, you get the same principle uh, in Deuteronomy 18 verses 18 and 19. Uh, we see that Israel's hope comes in believing the words of their Redeemer. Uh, their ultimate hope isn't necessarily in the law. Their hope is in believing the words of God. Uh, there's this faith in the word of God that is the, uh, the heart of the covenant. And then you, uh, in the prophets, uh, this is emphasized again. Again, one of the clearest and best known statements of it is in Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, the prophet clearly and pretty, pretty plainly says, The just shall live by faith. That, of course, is quoted by Paul in Romans and discussed there. Um, but uh, there, even in the, in the time of the prophets, it's taken for granted that uh, the salvation that's coming to God's people, the redemption that's coming through the covenant of grace, 
is coming by justifying faith. Uh, the just are living by faith. So you know, throughout the Old Testament, uh, God's people were called upon to have faith in his promises. Uh, and as we see with Abraham, that faith was justifying them. Uh, throughout the various administrations of the covenant of grace, there's this justifying faith that is accomplishing the goal of the covenant. Now, when you get into the New Testament, obviously the importance of justifying faith uh, doesn't really need much proof. It's, it's clear in the New Testament uh, that it's, it's through faith uh, that redemption comes to the people of God. Uh, the, the area that can be more uh, uncertain is it's important in the Old Testament, but certainly it's as clear in the Old Testament as the New if you, if you look. Now, some people will say that the, while, while faith had a role in the Old Testament, it was a fundamentally different faith than in the New Testament. Uh, that there's a, a distinction between Old Testament faith and New Testament faith that makes it hard to base any sort of unity within the covenant on this constant presence of grace. But as you read through the scriptures, uh, they clearly argue that the faith of God's people in the Old Testament is the same faith as God's people in the New Testament. Uh, it's the, the same faith and the same promises. Uh, you know, there are many instances where that's uh, cited and argued by the New Testament authors. Uh, just a couple of them. Uh, in Galatians 3, verses 8 and 9, uh, Paul indicates that the promises that Abraham believed in the Old Testament weren't different promises, but they were gospel promises. Uh, and Abraham's faith in those promises serves as an example for what our New Testament faith ought to be. Uh, our faith in God's promises ought to mirror Abraham's faith in God's promises. Uh, in Romans chapter 4, Paul makes the same sort of argument. Uh, Abraham's faith, again, is used as an example of what our faith should be. And really, you get that frequently in the New Testament with Abraham. Uh, Abraham is seen as being the father of the faithful. Uh, the believer, uh, Christian believers are the seed of Abraham. Uh, very clearly, Abraham's faith is the same as our faith. Uh, it's a justifying faith in the messianic promises of God. And therefore, it's held up in the New Testament as an exemplar of what ours ought to be. Now, of course, it's not just the faith of Abraham. Abraham wasn't unique in his justifying faith. Uh, the scriptures seem, simply seem to uh, use him as an example a lot of times. But they also refer to other men from the Old Testament in the same sort of way. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, uh, Paul cites... Uh, Psalm 116, verse 10, which was written by King David, and refers to that also as evidencing the same faith as New Testament believers have and ought to have. So very clearly, David also had the same uh, justifying gospel faith. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, a well-known chapter of Scripture, deals with faithful men throughout the Old Testament. It goes all the way back to Abel in chapter 4 of Hebrews 11. Uh, it goes through Enoch, Noah, through Abraham, all the way to Moses, up to the period of the Judges. It goes really a, a survey of Old Testament history uh, through individual men. And all of these men are held up as being examples of the faith that New Testament Christians ought to emulate. Uh, you know, we think of that chapter as testifying to men's uh, bravery and faithfulness and all these sorts of things. But underlying that, there's this principle uh, that these men had a faith uh, a, a faith in God that ought to be emulated by New Testament believers. Um, very clearly, these Old Testament saints uh, had a justifying faith in the gospel promises. Um, that's probably made particularly clear in Hebrews chapter 12 after the, the list of the faithful uh, believers has been given. You then get into chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And you know, having, having rehearsed all of these Old Testament saints, uh, the scriptures say, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The, the clear implication there is that you know, we also, since we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, ought to do as they did, i.e., look to Jesus, uh, the author and finisher of our faith. 
Uh, so even in these Old Testament uh, saints, there's a sense in which, a very real sense in which, they were looking to Jesus. They might not have known his name as Jesus of Nazareth, uh, but they knew of the Messiah that had been promised, and their faith was in that Messiah, and therefore it's the same faith that New Testament believers have and ought to have. Um, so you know, throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's people have been a people of faith and a people of the same faith, a faith that justifies them and that brings them into uh, the presence of God, that brings them into fellowship with God. Now, that's a, a pretty basic um, uh, belief within Christianity. We certainly believe that the Old Testament believers were justified the same way New Testament believers are. It's always been a matter of faith in Christ. That's something that we, I would hope, take for granted. And the, the point here is just that when you consider it in the light of the overall unity of the covenant of grace, something that we take for granted is a proof of the overall unity of the covenant of grace. Uh, you can't say that uh, the covenant administrations in the Old Testament were radically or fundamentally different than the covenant under Christ when you then say that everyone has always been saved by the same justifying faith. If the, if the covenant of grace is seeking uh, to bring God's people to himself and it's doing it through justifying faith in the Messiah, then there's this, obviously, this uh, essential unity throughout all the administrations that tie them together. And whatever variety you see amongst them is variety, but it's not variety in the essentials of the covenant. There's one covenant at work uh, achieving the same purpose through the same means. Um, God always has pursued uh, one purpose, that Emmanuel principle that we discussed, and he's always been doing it through the same means. That means being justifying faith in his messianic promises. So you have this one uh, unified covenant of grace. Uh, if, if y'all don't have any questions about the... or do, Does anybody have any questions? You're going back to last time or the first couple of minutes here this morning about the overall unity of the covenant of grace or any of the generals of the covenant of grace? I think that um, we're, we're fixing to look at Genesis 3.15 and we'll talk about it some there, but I think you could, um, throughout, I mean, it, in Genesis 3.15 you have obviously have a clear statement of a, a coming Messiah, a coming deliverer, and you have uh, from the start evidence that Eve is looking to that promise and is resting in it. Uh, so I think you know, from, from the very start, faith in God's messianic promises is rooted in the promise in 3.15. And then as you go on, what God promised in shadow form there receives greater clarity. And so um, faith later might be faith in a later clarification of that promise, but fundamentally it gets back to the same, the same promise. Um, you know, the promises to Abraham are really an expansion and a clarification of Genesis 3.15. So uh, post-Abraham, God's people... You could more properly say their faith was in the promises made to Abraham. But that promised Abraham was essentially the, a reiteration and clarification of the promise of 3.15. So in some ways it's faith in the same. In some ways, in some ways our faith today is faith in Genesis 3.15. We just have a lot more clarity given us through Revelation than Eve had. Does that, does that kind of answer your question? Um, they're not, yeah, they're all, they're all kind of, we're getting more and more light as, Redemptive history goes on. Any other questions on any of that? All right, well, we'll uh, start looking specifically at Genesis 3.15. Um, we have said that, uh, that in, in the covenant of grace, God has, uh, he has this one eternal purpose uh, he's pursuing this one goal or this one purpose, the Emmanuel principle, and he's doing it through uh, justifying faith in 
his messianic promises. And we've also said that this covenant of grace really stretches back into eternity. There's no, you can't really put a chronological starting date on the covenant of grace because it, it goes back into the Council of Peace and the Intertrinitarian Covenant. Uh, there's no um, temporal starting point to the covenant of grace in that sense. But there is a point at which this pre-temporal council of peace begins to actually be worked out in history, uh, a, a, a precise moment at which it starts to uh, evidence itself in history. And that point in the scripture, pretty clearly as we have said already, is Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. I'm sure you all are well familiar with that verse and its importance in the scriptures. Um, have y'all had a chance to do the reading out of Robertson, Palmer Robertson, for on this particular part of the course? I forget which week that would have been assigned, but um, it's the, I think he, he calls it the covenant of commencement, I believe. Um, and given what we have said so far about the covenant of grace, that it's an expansive covenant that reaches back into eternity, uh, that it includes uh, the council of peace and that that council then finds historical outworking through these individual covenants with different people. Um, even just given that that we've said already, uh, there's a pretty noticeable difference that I'm, uh, difference between the uh, view I'm taking uh, in the lectures. That's, or there's, the view I'm taking in the lectures is a big difference, or not a big difference, but a little bit of a difference between that and what Robertson says about this covenant of commencement. Anybody, anybody pick up on that as you read through the council, or through the uh, covenant of commencement chapter? It is. It, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, Robertson, uh, when he is uh, discussing this um, covenant of commencement that he calls it, um, the Genesis 3.15, he says, uh, this is what he says. He says, quote, the covenant of redemption, now remember he calls what we call the covenant of grace, he calls covenant of redemption, but the covenant of redemption is established immediately in conjunction with man's failure in the covenant of creation. And then he goes on to say, the very words that pronounce the curse of the covenant of creation also inaugurate the covenant of redemption. Um, and as you say, Robertson doesn't accept uh, the existence of a pretemporal intertrinitarian council of peace. Um, he certainly holds to the, the decrees, the doctrine of election, all that, uh, but he doesn't see that as occurring in a covenantal sort of structure. And so because he rejects the idea of, a, uh, of an eternal covenant, uh, he says that the covenant of grace is actually being established uh, there in Genesis 3.15, that the words of Genesis 3.15 are uh, the inauguration of the covenant of grace. But in the way that we're looking at things, uh, our view is a little bit different. Uh, Genesis 3.15 isn't the starting of the covenant of grace, uh, but rather it's the first temporal disclosure of the eternal covenant of grace. Uh, Genesis 3.15 doesn't mark a change in God's fundamental covenantal structure or his covenantal purpose, uh, but rather it marks a progression in God's revelation of that covenant structure and that covenant purpose. Uh, God isn't necessarily starting something new in Genesis 3.15. He's just giving us a, a categorical leap forward in revelation. Uh, he's revealing a covenant uh, that has existed from all eternity. Now, it seems to me that that's a fairly important difference to keep in mind. Um, it keeps us mindful of the eternality of God's purposes, uh, that those purposes had been the same even before the fall. Uh, his purpose hasn't changed because of the fall, but it has predated the fall. Uh, all things are occurring within uh, God's covenant purposes. I think it's a, a fairly important uh, difference to keep in mind that uh, just a little bit of a nuanced difference with Robertson. But obviously you don't want to make too much of the difference. 
Uh, but um, among other things, I pointed out uh, just to kind of highlight one of the points, really, of some of the reading that's assigned in the course. Um, as you've been reading through the three different authors, you probably notice that they all have a little bit different perspective on various things. Um, at some points in the lectures, we kind of side with one more than the other, sometimes not with any of them. Um, I think it's, it's important to see that just because someone says he holds to covenant theology, that doesn't mean that there's a strict covenant theology box into which you can put him. Uh, men take different views of different uh, covenantal structures or covenantal relationships. Um, just because somebody claims uh, the uh, mantle of covenant theology doesn't mean that they always believe exactly the same thing. Now, when it comes to something like this, you know, whether Genesis 3.15 is the first disclosure of an eternal covenant or whether it's the inauguration of that covenant, that's not necessarily a critical difference. But when you get into some other areas of covenant theology, um, people can use the uh, can use the mantle of covenant theology to obscure some pretty wacky theology. Um, it's, it's important when we come to covenant theology and read covenant theologians, it's important to have a good bit of discernment uh, to make sure that uh, what we're reading uh, and some of, the, some of the assumptions that are being built on covenant uh, are, uh, are biblical assumptions. Uh, one of the, hopefully one of the things you're gaining from the reading is uh, picking up some discernment when it comes to reading different uh, takes on covenant theology. But anyway, that's just as, as a side note. Uh, in Genesis 3.15, we do have this first temporal disclosure of the eternal covenant of grace. And in that uh, temporal disclosure in Genesis 3.15, uh, there are three things that I think we need to notice in particular. Uh, we have the, uh, the profound graciousness of the covenant of grace is highlighted. Uh, we also see the interconnectedness of the covenant of grace with the covenant of works. And finally, we get in Genesis 3.15 a description of the course that redemption will follow. Now, the, the, the first thing there that we find in Genesis 3.15 is it seems to me to really highlight the profound graciousness of the covenant of grace. Now, of course, to see the, the graciousness of Genesis 3.15, uh, you have to set verse 15 in its larger context. You have to go all the way back to the start of chapter 3 itself uh, to understand what's going on when you get to chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, Y'all are probably well familiar with Genesis chapter 3. Uh, the first five verses, uh, the serpent is tempting Eve. Uh, he does that both by distorting and by outright contradicting uh, the prohibition that God had given to Adam. Remember, we called it the, the focal aspect of the covenant of works, that command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, we find the serpent at times distorting what God had said and at sometimes outright contradicting it. Uh, and if y'all have had uh, Dr. Currid on Genesis, it seems like from our discussion a couple weeks ago that y'all either have or do now, or if you haven't, you soon will. And he uh, is, uh, does a, a much better job of dealing with that than I could. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave you to his um, thoughts on that. Uh, but um, essentially, you know, in the the interaction between the serpent and Eve, it's very clear that Eve doesn't have a firm grasp of God's revelation. She doesn't understand. She hasn't uh, fully uh, come to terms with the commands that God has given, which also very clearly implicates Adam in his negligence. He hasn't taught Eve uh, the word that God had given to him. Uh, the scriptures indicate that it was just Adam present for the giving of the prohibition, the terms of the covenant of works, and it was incumbent upon Adam to teach them to Eve, and he clearly hasn't done a particularly good job of it. Um, so, you know, in verses 1 through 5 of Genesis 3, uh, the, a great deal of faltering on Adam's part and through him on Eve's part comes to light. But the, the thing that we need to notice in particular for the purposes of, of uh, covenant theology is the overall thrust, really, of uh, Satan's words or the serpent's words in verses 1 through 5. Now, um, throughout those verses, of course, the serpent is focusing on the prohibition of the covenant of works. He's focusing on this command uh, 
uh, that God had given not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you remember from when we talked about the covenant of works, that one prohibition really kind of encapsulated the whole essence of the covenant of works. Uh, the essence of the covenant of works was uh, believing the word that God had spoken, uh, living uh, in obedience, and uh, this focal aspect of the covenant was really the, well, it was the, the focal aspect. It was the point at which that essence of the covenant was most supremely tested. And it's on that one focal aspect that the serpent is focusing his attacks. And in speaking of that one prohibition, uh, say, uh, the, the serpent's allegation, in essence, is that the covenant of works, which was God's covenant with mankind at the time, that it has been intended to limit mankind rather than to bless mankind. Uh, serpent, uh, the serpent's allegation is that God's covenant isn't for man's good, but rather that it's for man's oppression. Uh, that the covenant is there not to draw men to God, but to keep them at a distance from him. Uh, if you see, the serpent is essentially uh, presenting the covenant of works as exactly its opposite. Uh, it's not uh, an instrument of blessing to draw men to God. It's an instrument of oppression to keep them away from him. Uh, the serpent is fundamentally impugning the covenantal purpose of God and his graciousness in that covenantal purpose. Uh, that's, in a lot of ways, the, uh, the guiding motif of what the serpent is saying to Eve. And when you get into verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3, uh, you see that Eve succumbs to the temptation. Uh, the serpent has uh, alleged that God's covenantal purpose is uh, oppressive, and Eve uh, buys into the lie. In verse 6 of Genesis 3, you read the, the fateful words, uh, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now in those words, it seems to me that Scripture is making pretty plain uh, really the, the obscenity of sin uh, and the the utter depravity of sin throws the graciousness of the covenant of grace into much starker relief. Um, first of all, as, as we mentioned a couple of times ago, it's uh, apparent from verse 6 there that Adam was with Eve. Uh, verse 6 says that Eve gave to her husband with her and he ate. Uh, Adam was evidently watching Eve fall into temptation. He was watching her succumb to temptation. He was watching her eat uh, the forbidden fruit, and then he himself took it and ate himself. Uh, Adam's culpability in the whole affair is crushing, really, and it only gets worse uh, as you uh, think more deeply about it. Uh, in, the, in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy 2.14, uh, Paul has a an extremely damning comment about Adam. Uh, in 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul writes, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Now there in uh, 1 Timothy 2, uh, Paul is making a different argument. He's uh, talking about the roles of men and women in the church. But what he says in making that argument is remarkable. He says, Adam was not deceived. Now, that's not to Adam's commendation necessarily. And the, the point that you know, Paul's making a different point in relation to office holders. Um, but Adam sinned just as well as Eve did, and he evidently was not deceived. Uh, when Eve ate the fruit, she did so under the shroud of deception. Adam, when he ate the fruit, wasn't deceived. Uh, he had his eyes wide open, so to speak. He, he knew what he was doing. Uh, the man who brought sin and death and destruction into the world did it knowing that his flagrant disobedience would violate the covenant with God, that it was, uh, that it was a blatant disobedience against his creator. And if you, if you let the, the ramifications of that really sink in, that Adam sinned knowing what he was doing, uh, it really gives a, a pretty frightening depth 
uh, to your doctrine of sin. Uh, you have to remember that you know, all of this is occurring under the covenant of works. Uh, Adam knew that the perpetuation of his fellowship with God, or the continuation of his relationship with God, depended on his perfect and personal obedience to God's command. Uh, Adam obviously didn't grasp everything. He didn't understand everything the way that we do with the revelation that we have, but he at least knew that. Uh, Adam at least knew that if he ate of the fruit of the tree, his relationship with God as he knew it would end. Uh, in a real sense, Adam had a choice between God and disobedience. Uh, Adam could have one or he could have the other, but he couldn't have both. Uh, he could have fellowship with God or he could be disobedient. Uh, but even in the light of what he knew in the covenant of works, he could not have both. And Adam chose disobedience. And given what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, Adam wasn't deceived when he did it. He willingly chose disobedience. He willingly chose to reject God. Now, very, very often it seems to me that we, we think of sin as a rejection of God's law, a, a rebellion against God's command, a rebellion against what God wants. Uh, and certainly, sin is a rejection of God's law. But sin also is a rejection of God himself. Uh, when you appreciate the covenant of works in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, you see that when you get to Genesis 3, uh, you're confronted not with a situation in which God is just the creator and Adam is just the creature. Um, in Genesis 3, through the covenant of works, there's this relationship between Adam and God, and Adam knows what the parameters around that relationship are. He knows that if he eats of the fruit of the tree, he'll forfeit his relationship with God. So Adam, in his sin, isn't just rejecting the law, he's rejecting the God of the law. Now, he's not just rejecting the covenant, he's rejecting the God of the covenant. So when you see what's going on in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6, uh, in light of its context in the covenant of works, you realize that sin, most fundamentally, is a rejection of God himself. Uh, it's not only lawlessness, it's also personal betrayal. It's not just a rejection of God's law, it's a rejection of him. It's a rejection of the God who holds out that law as the basis of relationship with him. Um, and that, I think, gives us a, a deeper and a more frightening understanding of sin. Uh, we oftentimes tend to take sin uh, quite lightly. Uh, we think that you know, when we sin, we are just fudging on God's law a little bit. We're just maybe doing something God would rather us not do. But Genesis 3 makes it pretty clear to us that when we sin, we are uh, exercising a personal rejection of God. Uh, when you become so competitive about grades in seminary that you resent the gifts that God has given to others, or you become puffed up with pride uh, when you uh, look into the future and think of God's people as some sort of a stepping stone where you go to a, a small church to make a name for yourself and a bigger church to make a better name and then a bigger church and have a nice car. Um, when you look at God's people as a stepping stone rather than people that Christ died to save and you're called to serve, uh, when you have lustful thoughts, when you covet the possessions of others, when you do all of these uh, sins, you're not just uh, rejecting God's law, you're rejecting God. Uh, there's there's a, a fundamental, radical, really, difference between the two. Uh, in Adam's knowing what he did, uh, Adam's knowing the ramifications of his sin, we see the wickedness of what sin really is. And I think it's uh, when we take it into our hearts and think about it, it can be a, a pretty terrifying thing. Uh, but it also, uh, in the, the, you know, some of the details of Genesis 3 not only show us how um, wicked sin is, but it also shows us how enticing sin is. Um, as we've talked about before, uh, there's really no good reason why Adam should have sinned. Uh, we just said Adam wasn't deceived. Uh, he knew that he had everything. Uh, he knew that through his disobedience he would forfeit everything. Uh, there really was no good reason for Adam to sin. And also, as we said before, Adam was no fool. He was uh, the crown of God's creational glory. 
Uh, he was the, the greatest thing that God had placed in the earth. Uh, the confession says that he was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And yet still, Adam sinned. You can't explain away Adam's sin by detracting from the splendor of God's image bearer, but rather you have to explain sin simply by the unexplainable power of sin. There's something about sin uh, that Adam couldn't resist. And uh, that, I think, ought to serve as a strong warning to us and to any Christian. We think uh, that we can mark a line around what is allowed to be done and we can live right up on the border of what is allowed without falling into temptation. Uh, but when we consider the fact that Adam was innocent, that he had no good reason to sin, but yet he still fell into sin, uh, we realize that we can't hold temptation right up against us and not fall into it. Uh, there's an enticement to sin uh, that is um, that that brings about the fall of God's people or of, of mankind. Um, certainly, you know, in the spirit, we have uh, the ability to resist sin, uh, but we see uh, in sin's first entrance into the world, we see its amazing power of enticement. Um, we see that it's not only exceedingly wicked, but it's also extremely enticing. Now, I say, y'all might think I'm getting off, getting off uh, track from Genesis 3.15 or the covenant of grace, like we're reverting back to the covenant of works. But I say all this by way of highlighting uh, the wickedness that we find in the start of chap Genesis chapter 3. Um, you know, Genesis 1 and 2 has been great. There's this you know, wonderful creation, great relationship between God and mankind. And then you get into chapter 3, and it seems as if everything has kind of come off the rails. Um, Adam, you know, God's image bearer in the world, has rejected his creator He's fallen into sin and rejection of God. Um, there is a, uh, a, a wickedness and a, um, a depth to the fall that I think can easily be glossed over. But there's uh, just a, a fundamental uh, evil when you get into Genesis chapter 3 in Adam's sin. Um, and I think when we come to terms with that, the graciousness of Genesis 3.15 uh, is brought into clear relief. If you think about it, uh, the, the consumed fruit of Adam and Eve's rebellion was only barely, literally, into their stomachs. And God already is promising them redemption. He's already promising them grace. He's promising them a redeemer. Uh, even when they just had engaged in such a wicked act of rebellion and of rejection of Him. Uh, you know, we said already that there is an element of grace in the covenant of works. You know, there's uh, the fact that God you know, created all things. He let Adam have dominion. He uh, held out uh, the promise of eternal life through perfect obedience. There was real grace in the covenant of works. But the graciousness of the covenant of works is not even justified to say that it pales in comparison to the covenant of grace. There's, no, there's absolutely no comparison between the grace and the covenant of works and the grace of the covenant of grace. And I think that uh, that fact is brought into pretty uh, clear light when we consider uh, the wickedness of the fall and the fact that immediately on the heels of it, God is disclosing uh, this covenant of grace. Um, so we see there, and hopefully that somewhat brings out for you uh, the graciousness of the covenant of grace. And that's uh, one of the things that we uh, find most clearly here in Genesis 3 and particularly Genesis 3.15, that uh, it's in the context of such... Uh, abject rebellion and rejection uh, that God is making this promise to Adam and Eve. That's the, the first thing that we see here in Genesis 3.15. The second thing, there's a, a pretty clear interconnectedness uh, between the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. And you, um, you get that um, really, again, kind of throughout the opening part of Genesis 3. Uh, when you, you know, we just saw it where in verse 6, uh, Eve eats the fruit, she gives it to Adam, he eats of it also. And then when you get down into verses 7 through 13, uh, you see the immediate fallout of sin. Uh, there's this uh, fourfold alienation that results from sin. Uh, man is alienated within himself. You see that in verse 7. 
Uh, there's alienation between men. You get that in verse 12. Uh, there's alienation between men and the creation in verses 17 through 19. Uh, but most uh, tragically of all, there is an alienation between man and God, uh, which you see uh, pretty poignantly in verse 10. Uh, the man who had been made uh, in God's own image, the man who had been made explicitly to be with God, is now hiding from God. Uh, there's this uh, radical alienation uh, that has been brought between God and man because of sin. And it seems that all of those, that whole fourfold alienation is in some ways all brought together in verse 12. In verse 12, uh, God, when verse 11, God had asked Adam, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then in verse 12, Adam says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate it. You see there, Adam is just essentially lashing out and blaming everyone. He's blaming Eve, he's blaming God, he's blaming everybody else for his sin. Uh, there's a, an estrangement uh, between Adam and really all of the rest of reality. Now you see the... Um, the, the, the destruction that, this, that the fall has brought. Um, and then when you get into verses 14 through 19, uh, God essentially describes how the curse uh, will directly impact uh, the three parties who are there, uh, Adam and Eve and the serpent. And in those verses, as we've talked about already, uh, you see that the creation ordinances are reiterated. If you remember the creation ordinances from the covenant of works, um, they are reiterated in those verses, verses 14 through 19. Uh, man's sin has rendered him incapable of meeting God's demands, uh, but it hasn't exempted him from God's demands. Uh, the terms of the covenant of works still remain, and those terms will run, temporarily at least, they'll run alongside the covenant of grace. Now, that, uh, a question was asked a couple of lectures ago about... Um, the essentially the, the running alongside each other of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And you get a, at least an, a preliminary taste of how that happens uh, here in this part of Genesis 3. Um, for example, in uh, chapter 3, verse 16, you see that pain in childbearing is a curse of the covenant of works but it's also a recognition of the ongoing validity of the terms of the covenant of works. If you remember back to chapter 1, verse 28, God had uh, commanded Adam and Eve that they were to procreate, they were to uh, replenish and fill the earth. So you know, this, uh, the pain that the woman will have in child rearing uh, is not only a curse, but it's also an evidence of the ongoing terms of the covenant of works. But it's also through that childbirth that God will bring the seed who is the pinnacle of the blessings of the covenant of grace. As you see in verse 315 where uh, God promises to bring about the seed who will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, so you have, um, you have the covenant of works both in its curse and in its ongoing terms running alongside the covenant of grace. And in fact it's through um, those... It's, partly through that curse of the covenant of works that the blessing of the covenant of grace is coming. There's uh, a pretty inextricable sort of connection between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Uh, God is, through both of them, he's pursuing his purpose. Um, and you, when you get into what God is saying there in, in chapter 3, you see this connection. You can't, in a sense, you can't understand what's going on in the covenant of grace if you don't already understand the covenant of works. Um, God is bringing about his blessings through uh, both the abiding terms of the covenant of works and through and in spite of the curse uh, that the violation of that covenant has brought. So you see this connection. Uh, you can't think that with the fall you can altogether forget the covenant of works. Uh, it still has bearing on what occurs. Uh, it, it's in a sense, running alongside the covenant of grace. Any questions about that? That might not be too clear. As clear as anything else I say, so maybe that's good enough. Um, well, the third thing uh, that we find here in uh, 
in connection with Genesis 3.15 is that, uh, and this is specifically in Genesis 3.15 rather than in the broader picture of Genesis chapter 3, but Genesis 3.15 sets out for us really the course that all of God's redemption will follow. Um, In verse 15, Genesis 3.15, God is speaking to the serpent but he's uh, essentially articulating a promise for Adam and Eve. In verse 15, he says, again, speaking to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, obviously, there's a a great deal there in Genesis 3.15, but there are two things in particular that we need to notice. Uh, First of all, in verse 15, God speaks of creating an enmity, uh, sort of a a principled, hostile opposition, you might call it. An enmity, really on on several different levels. Uh, There's an enmity between the serpent and the woman. There's an enmity between the uh, descendants, plural, of the woman and the descendants, plural, of the serpent. And there's also this enmity between the one seed or the one descendant of the woman and the serpent. Um, There's this three-tiered enmity, if you want to look at it that way, uh, that God says he's going to create. Now, if you um, are looking at the the Hebrew of the text, you see that the word for enmity comes first in uh, in the verse. Va'iva and enmity appears first. There's emphasis being placed on the idea of enmity. Uh, God is creating this hostility between Eve and the serpent and the seeds of the two, and the verse is drawing attention to that enmity. And you find that it's that enmity between the, uh, the woman and the serpent that really come to define the two seeds that God describes there in Genesis 3.15. Who is the seed of the woman? Well, the seed of the woman are those to whom God gives enmity against the serpent. Uh, Who is the seed of the serpent? The seed of the serpent are those people who don't have enmity against the serpent. Obviously, the the seeds that God is describing here uh, are not a physical descent. Uh, They're a spiritual lineage, and that spiritual lineage... Uh, to a very large degree, is defined by the relative presence or absence of this hostility or this enmity. Those who have enmity against the serpent are of the seed of the woman. Those who don't have enmity against the serpent are the seed of the serpent. Um, You see that uh, even as you get into just the next generation of Adam and Eve's descendants. Uh, Cain and Abel, both physical descendants of Eve and Adam, of course. Uh, Cain and Abel are both their physical descendants, but Cain is of the evil one. Uh, we find in 1 John 3.12 clearly says that Cain is of the evil one, while Abel clearly is righteous. Uh, Hebrews 11.4 even includes him in that um, list of Old Testament saints. So there's this, uh, the, the seeds are a spiritual seed, and they, the, the distinction between the two really gets down to the presence or absence of this enmity against the serpent. Um, you know, God gives enmity to, to the serpent uh, amongst the seed of the woman, and those who are the seed of the serpent do not have that enmity against the serpent. Um, I'm always torn about whether to keep going or whether to stop. Um, we'll go for just a couple more minutes before we break for chapel. Um, now, th- th- this enmity between... Uh, the woman and the serpent and their relative seeds is important for a couple of different reasons uh, within covenant theology specifically. Uh, first of all, it's important because you know, throughout the progression of the covenants, throughout the different historical uh, covenantal administrations, you always see God choosing out some people to be His, uh, to be within His covenant, and you see Him not choosing others. You know, that's... Uh, a pretty clear instance of the doctrine of election. 
And between these two groups, between those whom God chooses and those who He doesn't, there always is this enmity. Um, that characteristic of God's covenant of grace is laid out from the very beginning. Uh, God's covenant of grace is a particularizing covenant or a discriminating covenant. It creates a division between two groups and that division can't be smoothed over. Uh, there's an enmity between those who are of God's people and those who are not. And it makes, uh, God makes it clear from the beginning that redemption will progress by this separation of a people to God and amongst those people uh, there will be enmity with the world. And it's, it can sound a little bit um, negative to say that God's people are marked out by enmity against the world. But when you really consider what is, is occurring there in Genesis 3, you see that that uh, particularizing aspect of the covenant of grace, this creation of enmity within the seed of the woman, is an enormous instance of God's grace. Uh, when God speaks the words of Genesis 3.15, when He says He'll create enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent, in a, it would really be legitimate to say that at that point, man and the serpent are in league against God. Uh, at that point, Adam has just personally rejected God in his sin. He's betrayed God. He's broken the covenant. Uh, at that point, the enmity that exists is an enmity between Adam and God. And what God is declaring there is that by His grace, He will reverse that enmity. Instead of man's enmity being against Him, in the hearts of some, He'll change it to where that enmity is against the serpent rather than against God. Uh, instead of mankind having enmity against his creator, God will graciously intervene and give him, give him enmity against the serpent who wants to destroy his soul. So this enmity that, that runs really throughout the covenant of grace, this um, hostility between God's people and the world, uh, at times more pronounced, at times less, but always present, that hostility uh, is an enormous instance of God's grace. Um, it was pronounced when there was only enmity between God and man, and, Ad and God declares his divine intention to reverse that uh, so that in his people, uh, in the seed of the woman, uh, their enmity is directed not against God, but against the serpent. Um, we'll probably we'll stop there. We'll continue. Um, there's one more thing to be said about the the enmity that God creates, but we'll, rather than be in the middle of it and have to stop, we'll uh, break now for chapel. And the preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.